started. Lesson 7, Dealing with Rotten Authority. I just like that title, Rotten Authority. I want to read to you several verses here uh, because in this particular instance, I believe the Scripture says everything really. I, I don't know that I could elaborate too much more on it. I'm going to, but it, it, it really stands by itself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Listen to this. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, you understand in scriptural days, you know, the old King James Version would be slaves to masters. But really the sense was uh, not indentured servanthood, but as much as what we would uh, an, uh, cause it to be analogous to an employer and employee situation. So if you're an employee and you have an employer, this is really the way you need to hear this passage. It says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, y'all need to underline that or highlight it because some of you aren't going to believe that, but that's in your Bible. That's in your Bible. You say, ha, I have a harsh employer. I have a harsh boss or a harsh supervisor. I don't see why I have to. All right, I just gave you one reason right there. It's in the Bible. This is what Peter says, for this is commendable. Now, remember what Peter was facing in those days. They were facing despicable Caesars, Roman emperors, Nero, uh, Domitian. I mean, if I went through the things that they did to people and to Christians in those days, it would literally turn your stomach. You've heard some of the stories about the, the, the torment and, and the Colosseum. Um, I don't know that I have time to go through all the just despicable ways that these, these Roman Caesars would, would you know, literally try to snuff out the church. And um, if there was ever a ruler that you could justifiably say, that's just, that's just wrong, it, it would be a Roman Caesar. But this is what Peter says. He says, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you get a whooping because you did something wrong, well, that's usually justified. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. <laughs> and in the, it, it's the Bible. It'll mess you up every time you read it. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Listen, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wow. See, that, that just needs, that's just the word of God. That's not me commenting on it. That's just the word of God. And you need to let that just marinate in your system for a little bit. Because there's going to be moments you're going to be under a harsh, 
rotten authority. And 1 Peter 2, 18 and following is going to pop up in your spirit, and all of a sudden it's going to change the way you react to that. Now, let me read a couple more things here. Jude 1, 9 and 10. It says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Now, this was really interesting because Jude apparently had some insight into the spirit realm and what happened after Moses died. Apparently, Moses died and he was uh, being escorted uh, to the Lord in some form or fashion, and there was some sort of tug of war that was going on between Michael and the devil over the body of Moses. There was this, this disputing that was going on. But it said here that Michael dared not bring against him, meaning the devil, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. Um, in these things, they corrupt themselves. Jude was saying that, that there is a propensity in us to revile or to speak evil of dignitaries or authorities. And he says, you, you need to be careful. You don't, know, you don't know at times what you're saying or what you're doing. And he uses Michael's dispute with Lucifer. And not even in that instance was he able to send a reviling accusation. Now, I'm just telling you, you let these things sink in, it's going to cause you to go tilt. Because I have listened through the years when people have prayed and done spiritual warfare. And by the way, I do believe in spiritual warfare. And I do believe that there's an appropriate binding of the enemy and an application uh, of the blood. You know, we plead the blood. I believe there's an, uh, uh, an appropriate application of all of these things and to contend and wrestle with principalities and powers. I believe all of these things. But I have listened through the years, and I myself have been, uh, before I got some revelation on this, has, has been this way, where we'll get up and we'll start battling with the enemy, and the, the instant we start battling with them, we'll, we'll, we'll give reviling accusations. We'll call him slewfoot and pigeon-toed and you know, and we'll just, you know, I bind old Slewfoot. And listen, I'm just, I'm just going to say this real, real carefully. I believe we have authority over the enemy, but, but I'm going to be real. I want to say this right because I don't want to give him any more credit than, than what he's got. And I believe he's under my feet and the Lord's given me that authority. But that authority is not mine. It's, it's through him. You understand that as well. I mean, if, if it's just me and the enemy, I'm toast. If it's the Lord in me and the enemy, then we're okay. But there are sometimes I think we just kind of get full of ourselves and we send out these reviling accusations and it opens up a door, even in our spiritual warfare. I just think you need to let that marinate and think about that. You know, I understand I have authority over the enemy, but let's not, let's not be naive. He's a powerful adversary, powerful adversary. And God has put into motion certain spiritual laws or precepts that if they're violated, that is considered rebellion, and that leaves an open door for the enemy to move through. And so I think we need to be sensitive to that. Yes, can you bind the enemy? Yes. Can you, can you set the blood of Jesus against powers and principalities? Yes. But I, I think there's an appropriate protocol and, uh, and, and, and uh, presentation of those things. At least you begin to get that sense out of the book of Jude. The book of Exodus 22, interesting here as well. It says in Exodus 22, 28, it says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Wow. And this was when they had a Pharaoh. And you understand how evil Pharaoh was. And, and yet the word of the Lord is, you, you, you are not to revile even a rotten Pharaoh. 
Again, I just want you to marinate in this. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20, says this, Do not curse the king, even in your thoughts. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight might tell the matter. What does that mean, Pastor? It means this, that, that you can just be so used to saying things or spouting things off that you don't know where you may be sometime and you spout something off and you don't know who heard you and it's almost like a bird took a word that you didn't think anybody else heard but that bird heard it and it whispered it in the ears of that authority. That's not always a good thing. And then finally, Acts 23, 1 through 5, again, I'm just reading all of these because they really stand on their own. It says, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Talking about Roman law. At this point, he was a Roman citizen, and he couldn't be struck uh, without uh, an appropriate uh, court date and, and, and being, uh, being found guilty, then he could be uh, incarcerated or, or beat or whatever the case may be. And then it says, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Now, how many of you know the religious system of his day was, was terrible? We're not these were not spiritual people, not even remotely spiritual, and Paul knew they weren't spiritual. In fact, most of his preaching had to deal with coming out from under that system and coming into this, this new covenant. And it says here that Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, those are the verses that never get taught on. <laughs> These are the verses that never are brought forth with illumination and revelation, but they're really important that we get out there because if you haven't met a rotten authority yet, if you've not had a rotten boss, if you've not had an unfair teacher or an unjust teacher, if you've not had a bad church experience or you felt like you had an abusive situation with a pastor or a church leader, whatever the case may be, you need to be very careful. In these next two weeks, we're going to begin to uh, help you understand this because let me tell you, I failed at it, you failed at it. We can all wish we could go back and do things differently, amen? I mean, there are 10,000 things I could give you tonight that I wish I could go back and do differently. Is that not the truth? Is that everyone, right? Oh, if I could only go back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an insight here. You can't go back. I wish I could change it. You wish you could change it. Nobody can change it. That's why we say hallelujah for the blood, because it cleanses. And so the good news is I can't change, you can't change, no one can change their past, but here's the deal. Once you get revelation, you can change your future from this point forward. Now, in the notes I just put down here, surely the Lord would not require us to be obedient to that which was offensive or sinful. A person needs to be careful at this point that their perspective and understanding of God's ways is clear in their heart and mind. It is easy to define an authority as harsh or terrible when you're being challenged in areas of uncomfortability or even blind spots. 
I don't know, it may never have happened to you, it's happened to me, and I think probably it's happened to everybody, and sometimes it takes a little time to get this perspective, but there have been times all of us have been pulled into an office, we've had an employer, I've worked for other pastors, I mean, all of us have had these moments when we're pulled in and all of a sudden we're confronted with something we didn't see or, or we didn't think about or we didn't know, and all of a sudden it's addressed in our life, and, and, and because we didn't see it or because we didn't think it or that wasn't our heart and we all have gone through this, we say to ourselves, I'd, I don't know that I believe that or I don't know that that's accurate. And what happens is we walk out of the room after that's over and we say to ourselves, I, I, that's just a harsh authority. No, it's not. It could be an authority that loves you greatly and is trying to help you in some area. For, I'll just give you an example. I know this to be an example. I know of somebody in, this is in the, Everyday workaday world. Everyday workaday world. And they were habitually late for their job. Now, can I just say this? If I just stop there, do you know where this story is headed? They're habitually late for a job that they're being paid for to be there on time. Boss calls them in, touches them on their timeliness punctuality. They walk out going, I can't believe. I cannot even believe. I don't they know, don't they this, don't they that, don't they know, don't they know that four months ago I stayed five minutes overtime? And they copped an attitude and then their boss ended up releasing them. And then they got even more offended. Now I want to ask you a question at this point. Was that a harsh authority? Come on, no, he wasn't. He was paying for eight hours of work. And eight hours may have started at eight o'clock. Why should he pay for eight hours of work? Why should he pay for your 15 minutes of going by Bojangles? See, that wasn't, that wasn't a harsh authority. He was helping you. Listen to me. This is why God works through authority. That authority, you say, well, he wasn't even a Christian. Listen, listen, God was using him to help you with your unfaithfulness. Are you following me? See, that was a minister of God right there. Working on you because, you see, if, if God allowed you to keep functioning with that tardiness, you don't realize that what a man soweth, that shall he also reap, and you're sowing lateness constantly, and then you're going to wonder, why in the world does it seem like God's always late with me? Why does it seem like nobody, nobody gets to me things on time? Why does it seem like everybody's tardy with me? Well, it's because you've sowed it most of your life. But God tried in that one job situation to use that authority to get you there on time. And you thought he was just a harsh authority, not realizing that was God helping to put something in order so that you could be blessed. See, that's why, that's why I have this thing with punctuality. I got this revelation years ago, and I hate being late. There are occasions that I've been late, and I just, I, if you could only know how I beat myself up on the inside, because this is, I got a revelation of it. If I sow this, I will reap this, and I don't want God to be late with me. So, so this is one thing. In fact, and I had a pastor who was pretty myopic on tardiness as well, so that helped me get that in my system. I'll never forget one day. I mean, this is the things people don't get. I, I picked my pastor up one time. I think I told the story, and he was riding in my car, and he looked at my vehicle, and he said, Kevin, your car's kind of dirty. Well, I said, yes, sir, I didn't, have, I didn't have time to get it cleaned up. He goes, yeah, I can tell. You know, really, a minister of the gospel ought to have a clean car. 
okay. Inside, I'm going, what's that, got, what's that got to do with the gospel? What's that got to do with anything? You know, that's what's going on inside of me. And he looks, he goes, you know, you know if you're not faithful in that which is lesser, you're never going to get a better car. Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate that. I... Now, here, here's my choice when I get out of that car. I can look and say, what right does he have to say that? Now, and, and again, maybe he didn't have any right. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, how many of you know, that may have been the voice of God to me at that moment. But I, but I could have said, rotten authority, harsh, 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 harsh. And I miss what God's doing in my life. Now, there are various examples here that I have written of God's people being under rotten authority. You are not the first Christian who has ever faced unfair, unjust treatment or have an authority over you that's just rotten. Um, the Israelites and Pharaoh, I already mentioned this um, in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. Uh, there were three Hebrew boys in Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you know that the three Hebrew boys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were under uh, unrighteous authority? And so, um, you know, they had to learn how to navigate that in a Babylonian system. Uh, Daniel and Darius, you know, Daniel got thrown into a lion's den. And uh, because he was in a lion's den, uh, he was thrown there and, and God was able to do some miraculous things. Did we have a light go out, by the way, guys? Is that what happened? We just blew a light? No, that happens. Um, the apostles and religious leaders, um, they were under poor authority. Uh, civil rulers. How I many you know we don't always get the people we vote for? Isn't that true? And, and, and just because you don't get the person that you, you voted for doesn't mean all of a sudden you can just spend every waking hour uh, uh, giving reviling accusations. We need to be really, really careful in this regard. Jesus, of course, and religious leaders. And so God's people have always found themselves under rotten authority. And, and there are some questions that need to be reminded. I guess we're going to be reminded of these and need to be answered and, and I'm not going to read every single verse that's associated with this. Um, however, all of them pertain uh, easily and quickly to all of these passages. So let's just listen to this once again. Number one, did God ordain all human authority? The answer is yes. That's what Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, that all authority comes from God, that there is no authority that God is not in. Yes, even evil rulers. God uses evil rulers. I, I know we're going tilt, but nonetheless, the scripture says that. Is God responsible for all promotions, which means this. I didn't, in a democracy, it means this. Well, I didn't vote for him, so I don't think it's God's will. Let me tell you, Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, For promotion cometh neither from the east or the west or north or the south, but from God alone. He's the one that raises one up and sets another down. So it doesn't matter which president is in office, it doesn't matter who's in Congress, who's representing your district, it doesn't matter who the governor is or what you may think. Somehow, some way, in God's economy, he works within that and he raises people up and sets them down. And that's why it's so important that, that we pray for our civil rulers because our rulers empowered to correct, the answer again in Romans 13 is yes. They're there in order to bring correction to us. Now you say, well, what if they're not doing right? We're getting there. Does God have direct influence on rulers? The answer is yes there, Proverbs 22, verse 1. It says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Can I just share this with you? If we got serious about believing God and what he can do in intercession, do you understand we can turn the heart of Congress and we can turn the heart of the White House? 
because the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. And that's the part we got to get a hold of. Everybody's waiting for November. Now, I, you know, I want, I want some things to change as much as anybody in November. But listen to me. I'm not waiting for democracy to come to my aid. I've already got aid if I'll just get in touch with the one who has the king's heart in his hand. Amen. I'm preaching pretty good right now. Thank you very much. We'll be here longer if I have to do all this myself. So, <laughs> Are there times when those under authority should refuse to obey? The answer is yes, Acts 5.29. Now, we're going to deal more with this a little tonight and a little next week, but Acts 5.29, as you will recall, that Peter and John were instructed to no longer teach or minister in the name of Jesus. It's a similar story to what happened with Daniel when he was told that he could no longer pray to the one true and living God and that he had to bow down to the idol. What do you do, what do, you do when government tells you to do things that violate God's word? Well, Acts 5.29 uh, says, it's, it says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, that verse is applicable only when you're being asked to violate Scripture. Now, there are certain, I'm sure there are certain conscience issues that we could talk about with regards to a conviction or things, but you've got to understand that anytime, anytime you choose not to obey, there, there could be repercussions. So, be, so at least, you know, understand that if I disobey, if I disobey, I'm going to have some repercussions. But, but the key here is not that they were debating about an opinion, See, see, our problem sometimes in, in, our, in our current world is, is that if we disagree on something with somebody who's over us and we have a difference of opinion, they're not asking us to violate Scripture, they're not asking us to violate our conscience, they're not asking us to do something against our knowledge of God, it's just a difference of opinion, we still want to apply Acts 5.29. And you cannot do that. Because, because that otherwise we would be lawless, we would be under our own law. You see, we're under, we have to come under authority as well. So, yes, there are times to obey. So if there was ever, see, if there is ever a law that comes out, which is, which is coming up, let's say a hate speech law, and, and this would be a good night to clear it up. I can clear it up with you. I don't believe that you ought to do hate speech. I don't, I don't, I mean, God, God's love and we ought not hate people. So, so in the sense of do you think hate speech is something we ought to be able to have? Well, who, who believes in hate speech? But when you begin to define what hate speech is, and if hate speech is simply instructing people who are living or acting in sin that they are sinning, if that's hate speech and that becomes against the law, then I must obey God rather than man. Now, I'm telling you, I, I, I had a guy the other day, we just reconnected. He was, happened to be in South Carolina, a, a Canadian pastor from Toronto came, and I asked him about it. I said, you know, we had lunch, I think it was two days ago, and I asked him, I said, I'm hearing this stuff that in Canada, man, you can't get up and preach Romans chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and talk about homosexuality or people just, you know, you could be hit with litigation and, you know, civil and criminal penalties, and he says, oh yeah, man, he's, he's Brazilian and he pastors in Canada, it's really cool. He says, oh, yeah, man. I mean, I, I've got friends. He told me, he said, i got friends right now that have lawsuits against them, and, 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 and the government is putting pressure on them, and, and you, can't, you can't do that. He said, well, of course, I do it. 
because I must obey God rather than man, because that's scripture. See what I'm saying? It's not opinion. See, if the government were to say that, that they would, that, you know, I'm just trying to think of something. You know, they ask, for instance, if I, if I, if I pay employees that I report how much I pay for W-2 purposes. Now, now, nowhere in the Bible does it say thou shalt not do W-2 forms. Now, I can have an opinion. Don't misunderstand. I, my opinion may be that government ought to get its fingers out of what I'm doing. Now, that could be my opinion, but you understand them asking me that doesn't violate the word. So I obey authority. I can't stand up and say, God spoke to me and I don't have to do W-2s. Well, I'm probably going to go to jail. Okay, and that would be the repercussion of that disobedience. But do you understand, that, that's not a right position. I remember years ago that there were people that I knew very closely that were a part of the pro-life movement. And during the 80s that they would peacefully assemble outside of abortion clinics and... Uh, and they would pick it or they would do certain things peacefully. Now it was, and, and hear me now, it was no different a lot of what they were doing than what the civil rights movement did. And, and again, they were right in doing it as well, peacefully, nonviolent. And they were arrested. Because, you know, the Bible says that God is against the shedding of innocent blood. And I remember going to court and uh, just supporting some of them. And one of the gentlemen, one of the gentlemen I knew was in the witness stand and they were questioning him. And they just asked the simple question. This was the question. Did you not see the no trespass ordinance that was issued and that you violated? And this is what he said. He said, the sheriff could have pinned that, could have pinned that ordinance to my chest. And he was about like that. That was about his attitude, too. Could have pinned it in my chest, and I still would have done it. And I was back in the courtroom, and I said, oh, God, help him. See, he may have been right in his disobedience, but he was wrong in his spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about next week when it comes to appealing, is that you can be right in your stand, and you can be wrong in your attitude. And can I say this? If you're wrong in your attitude, you're all wrong. Because wrong attitude with good truth is still wrong. We're called not only to speak the truth, but we're to speak the truth in, yeah, see? So you got to have the right attitude with that as well. Should those under authority expect their views to be seen quickly? In other words, if you ask or speak something to your boss, should they see it quickly? Well, Proverbs 25, um, 15 says, By long forbearance... For by patience, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. You know, sometimes when you're appealing things, and again, we'll, we'll open this can up again next week, but, but you gotta, you got to give God time to work, and that's patience. Are we obligated to obey an authority who has an offensive disposition? Yep, I read those verses to you. Is it right to join a crowd to forcefully remove a person from a position? Nope. 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 There are many congregations that are under the judgment of God because they gathered them up a posse and they ran pastor out of the church. And I'm telling you, they're under the judgment of God. You know, it, you know if, if he's wrong and you pray, God will get that thing taken care of. He will. He will. I've watched it too many times. Are there times a person under authority should separate from their authority? Yes. 
Matthew 10, 23, it says, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It, the truth of the matter is, is, is sometimes we're called to suffer for righteousness' sake, but sometimes if, if, if you're suffering under persecution, that's a good indicator that it might be time to go. Remember David and Saul? Saul was throwing spears at David, and what did David do? He left Dodge. He said, I've ducked long enough. And he went to the caves. So there are times that it's appropriate to separate. And then, and then the question is, must we respect a ruler who is evil in our eyes? And the, and the answer to that question is still yes. Even Saul, at the end of his life, David commanded that he be respected, even though he had consulted witches and uh, done despicable, ungodly things that actually murdered 85 priests at Nob, and uh, yet David said, we will respect him. It, I'm just telling you, in, in our American democratic mindset, we're going tilt. We go tilt. But this is why we are impotent and we are powerless and we don't understand how God can work miracles because we want, we want to do things in the flesh. We want to get our hands around it. We want to make it happen. You know, I've, I've heard that. You know, we got to make it happen. You know, you, we don't make anything happen. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And, and we've got to give God time to work. Now, understanding how to relate to rotten authority. We're going to move through this really quickly. It's not easy to be under a bad ruler. However, to gain perspective before you immediately do or say anything, ask yourself the following. Number one, how did I get to this point? A lot of times people come in and they'll want to counsel about their job situations and things like that, et cetera, and it's a bad situation. I will agree with you, and they're asking for input. But really, before you get to the place of that, you need to ask, how did you get there? Because let me go back just a few steps in many people's situations. These are the questions. I asked just a couple questions. Number one, before you took the job, did you pray about it? Well, there's only two answers to that. Yes. Or no. Now, if you said no, you didn't pray about it, and you went ahead and took the job, then what does that say? You're in a place that might not have been God's will for you to be at in the first place. So what would God use that situation to teach you? Connect the dots. Now, let's say you said, well, yes, I prayed about it. Well, what does that mean? It means that if you, yes, you prayed about it and you took the job, that means that you felt like it was God's right. So you were obeying God and now you're here and so you're telling me you miss God? Well, did you? Well, uh, or maybe God was leading you to this point to do something more in you. Are you following me? See, when you're with a harsh ruler, all you can see is the harsh ruler, and you think it's all him or all her. When truth of the matter is, it may not be anything with them. Are you here? How did you get here? Did you want your own way? Did you truly understand what it meant to be under this person? What do you need to learn about where you're at? Because I'll assure you, if the steps of the righteous are ordered and you claim righteousness, then you're here by divine design. Something God's wanting to do needs to be done. And my suggestion would be, let's learn it so you can be sprung free. Now, number two, 
Are you reaping anything you've sown? You know, sometimes we're put in situations not realizing we've sowed a lot of stuff and now we're just in a situation where we're reaping everything we've sowed. Is this relationship that I'm in a repercussion of some judgment or vow or spiritual precept I have violated? See, before you can judge your harsh ruler, let's just, let's, let's, judgment starts first at the house. I believe it starts in this house first. So ask yourself, am I, am I reaping something here? Come on, be honest. Number three, is all known rebellion and non-submission dealt with in me that I can evaluate this situation accurately? Is there any chance that the problem is not my authority, but it's really me? See, that's where it starts when you're in, when you're in a challenging situation. You've got to start asking yourself, is God dealing with you somehow? I, I, I'll be honest with you, and I, and I believe this, and I'll just be transparent and upfront. Most of the situations I was ever in that I considered that I was under harsh authority, truth of the matter is, God put me there to weed out what I was under that was in me. That I, I, I'll just be upfront and honest. Now, I, would, would I have admitted that at the time? No, I wouldn't have admitted it. I was David. I was pure, just like you. You're pure. Nothing wrong with you. It's them. That's how I was too. It ain't me. It's them. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Good. I, I love it when people say, it's not my heart. You know, the Bible says that the heart is above all things desperately wicked and who can know it? That's scripture. But you, we walk around and go, I know my heart. <laughs> well, you're violating a scripture. I'm a pastor and I don't know that I know my heart all the time. But that's why i got to stay before the Lord and make sure that, that the concepts of meekness and humility and these things are, are, are continually worked in me, all right? You too. we got to discern how God is using authority, even rotten authority, in your life. Are you recognizing the rottenness in you? The Saul you serve is at times the Saul in you. Golly, I, I need to read this. This is out of A Tale of Three Kings. My king is mad, at least I perceive him, so what can I do? Well, first, recognize this immutable fact. You cannot tell, none of us can, who is the Lord's anointed and who is not. Some kings whom all will swear are after the order of King Saul are really after the order of David, and others whom all men swear are after the order of David really belong to the order of King Saul. Who's correct? Who can know? To whose voice do you listen? No man is wise enough to even break that riddle. All of us... All any of us can do is walk around asking ourselves the question, is this man the Lord's anointed, and if so, is he after the order of Saul? Memorize that question very well. You may have to ask it of yourself 10,000 times, especially if you're a citizen of a realm whose king might just be mad. Asking this question may not seem difficult, but it is, especially when you're crying very hard and dodging spears and being tempted to throw one back and encouraged by others to do just that. And all your rationality and sanity and logic and intelligence and common sense agree. But remember in your tears, you know only the question, not the answer. No one knows the answer except God, and he never tells. I don't like that answer. It skirted the problem. I'm in David's situation, and I'm in agony. What do I do when the kingdom I'm in is ruled by a spear-wielding king? Should I leave? If so, how? Just what does a man do in the middle of a knife-throwing contest? 
Well, if you didn't like the first question, you won't like this one. The answer is you get stabbed to death. What is the necessity of that or the good of it? You have your eyes on the wrong King Saul. As long as you look at your king, you will blame him and him alone for your present hell. Be careful, for God has his eyes fastened sharply on another King Saul, not the visible one standing up there throwing spears at you. No, God is looking at another King Saul, one just as bad or worse. God is looking at the King Saul in you. In me, Saul is in your bloodstream. In the marrow of your bones, he makes up the very flesh and muscle of your heart. He is mixed into your soul. He inhabits the nuclei of your atoms. King Saul is one with you. You're King Saul. He breathes in the lungs and beats in the breast of us all. There is only one way to get rid of him. He must be annihilated. You may not particularly find this to be a compliment, but at least now you know why God put you under someone who just might be King Saul. David the sheep herder would have grown up to be King Saul II, except that God cut away the Saul inside David's heart. The operation, by the way, took years. It was a brutalizing experience that almost killed the patient. And what were the scalpel and tongs God used to remove this inner Saul? God used the outer Saul. King Saul sought to destroy David, but his only success was that he became the handmaiden of God to put to death the Saul who roamed about in the caverns of David's own soul. Yes, it's true that David was virtually destroyed in the process, but this had to be. Otherwise, the Saul in him would have survived. David accepted this fate. He embraced the circumstances. He lifted no hand. He offered no resistance. He did not grandstand his piety. Silently, privately, he bore the crucible. Because of this, he was deeply wounded, his whole inner being was mutilated, his personality was altered, and when the gore was over, David was barely recognizable. You probably don't like that answer. None of us do except God. Now, I'll go on the next step that Gene Edwards didn't necessarily say here, and it's this. If you want to be used greatly of God, then understand that what happens is, is that you enter into crucifixion. In other words, you have to die to yourself, and out of that, God raises up a resurrected person. We all want to do great things. We all want to exercise influence. We all want to be nation shakers. Let me tell you something. In order for us to handle that right, and not many men and not many women have handled that right through the years, I, I, I believe there's a journey that goes straight through a cross, that we are crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That doesn't happen by theory. Are you hearing me? That makes a good sermon, and we all say, yeah, you're right, Pastor. Amen, amen, amen. And then we'll worship to some great song, and we'll walk out of here and go, yep, yep, I've crucified my flesh. Let me tell you, you haven't crucified your flesh until you go back to work on Monday morning, and you find your King Saul, and he asks you to do something that's beneath your pay grade or your level, and it's irritating the hound out of you, and you're ready to quit and throw in your keys and turn it all in, and at that moment, the Spirit of God looks at you and just says, how dead are you? That's where destiny is created. You can read the rest of the notes, and I'll jump to the conclusion, and then I'm done. If you haven't got a tale of three kings, you've got to go out and buy the book. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, and even fewer graduate. Very few indeed. God has this school because he does not have broken men. 
Instead, he has several other types of men. He has men who claim to be God's authority and aren't, men who claim to be broken and aren't, and men who are God's authority but who are mad and unbroken. And he has, regretfully, a spectroscopic mixture of everything in between. All of these he has in abundance, but broken men and women, hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all who are in this school must must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out the pain. David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. As the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. He knew that God had placed him in the king's palace under true authority. The authority of King Saul, true, yes, God's chosen authority. Chosen for David, unbroken authority, yes, but divine in ordination nonetheless. Yes, that is possible. David drew in his breath, placed himself under his mad king, and moved farther down the path to his destiny. I'm just telling you, God is raising up a new breed of Christian and a new breed of leader and a new breed of church. Oh, it really won't be church as usual. You understand that when the harvest comes in, do you understand that in the last days, if we are living in the last days, and I believe we are, and the great harvest comes in, and literally God begins to fill churches up multiple, multiple, multiple times. If, if God were to do that, and he would let us think about this, and he would let us shepherd that with unbroken hearts, do you realize how many people we would just flat mess up? But if he can find a group that has truly been broken, now, when I say broken, I'm not talking about doubt, devastated. Broken, broken in the Bible means yielded. And, and don't walk out and go, I know I'm yielded. No, we'll find out how yielded you are. So will God. Remember Monday morning or Thursday morning. But if he can find truly broken people, those, those are the people that he can trust to move through in incredible, powerful ways. I'm just telling you, wherever God has placed you, you may be in a secular work field, you may be in a place that you don't get. I'm telling you that God will, God will favor you if you'll understand how he'll work through your brokenness. Daniel found favor in four corrupt Babylonian administrations. How could he have done that? It's because he was broken before the Lord. He knew when to obey, and he knew when to not obey, and he knew the right spirit to do it in. All right? We're going to pick it up there next week. Will you stand with me?